0: I have come to the conclusion that in my hands, the chance of a, a, a trapdoor deformity is less likely with this step incision.
1: So welcome to this edition of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. This is our first special podcast, um, super special because we've been interviewing Dr. Bauman-Gyron um, already, and we've now onto to our third special podcast with him, which is going to be absolutely great. And he's going to be taking us step by step through a primary rhinoplasty. So, a lot of the surgery is on the video. So, if you can't get onto the pod, uh, onto the YouTube platform, um, just search for the rhinoplasty podcast or my name, Dr. Cameron McIntosh, get onto the YouTube channel. But we're going to be obviously concentrating on people who can not necessarily see the videos, but listen to the talks. So as we go along, we'll be discussing it um, and we might be pausing the video. So it's a great honor for us again, to have one of the most experienced rhinoplasty surgeons in the whole world with us tonight, uh, Professor Bauman guyron Thank you very much for being on the show with us. And I'm really looking forward to climbing into this video with you and watching you do a primary rhinoplasty.
0: Thank you, Cam. It's great to be with you again. <clears throat> What I'd like to do tonight is uh, share with you uh, a primary rhinoplasty video. Uh, However, I don't do exactly the same steps on uh, one single patient. So what I'm going to show you uh, is amalgamation of the uh, different videos, but I also show you the complete video on one single patient. Uh, I may diverge, go, uh, go back and forth, and uh, have some explanations uh, about the specific video that may not uh, be applicable to the uh, patients that we're, patient that we're going to be reviewing. In fact, I'm going to start with the introduction of the patient. Uh, we're going to analyze the picture, and I'm going to show you uh, what I did for that particular patient. But again, uh, I may diverge periodically to show you a video that uh, is different and uh, would not be suitable for that particular patient, but it is part of what we need to know, a part of what we need to learn to be able to take care of every primary rhinoplasty patient. And Some of these principles apply to the secondary rhinoplasty patients.
1: Well, that's great. I mean, it ties in so well with our, our previous two podcasts. The one was on just on analysis that we spoke about for an hour. And then last week, we spoke about some advanced techniques and lengthening the nose and shortening the nose as well as the thick-skin rhinoplasty. But this is really great to actually be able to step-by-step go through um, the actual surgery.
0: Okay, so... uh... I'm hoping that you're seeing the slides. Yes, lovely. Are, are you able to see yes, the that, slides, now? that's scan?
1: fantastic.
0: Okay. So these are my disclosures. I receive royalties for these four books in case you, you, there's a CME involved. Uh, we're going to be operating on this patient and some of the patients who particularly have uh, Middle East or... or uh, background from uh, Israel and other places, they want con- conservative surgery, and uh, we are going to do a conservative surgery on this particular patient. Uh, but uh, on the on the profile, we are seeing some, ir- on the pr- front view, we are seeing some irregularities in this area. The nose widens, narrows, because this patient had con- concave uh, lateral curve of the lower uh, lateral cartilages. slightly wider tip, minimally long nose on the front view because we're not seeing much of the nostrils, and this obviously, this nose is going to uh, require a slight tip rotation. On the lateral view, we're seeing a fuller radix than optimal, and uh, dorsal hump, uh, and This is a type of nose that it is actually a setup for failure in terms of tip projection because the androcaudal portion of the septum is above the most projected portion of the tip. And this is a nose that uh, when he smiles, the tip rotates caudally. And we need to be prepared to create more tip projection and we will do so. On the basilar view, uh, please pay attention to the size of these nostrils and the foot plates. We're going to adjust these and there's weakness on the the external valve and overall uh, the nostrils are narrower than they should be. And we are seeing a slight separation of the domes, Not, not too bad in that regard. And this is the video of the patient. Uh, you can see, again, what, what we discussed. I'm not going to dwell on too, too much, uh, just outlining uh, everything that we, we just discussed. I do, overwhelming majority of my patients, in fact, all of my rhinoplasties are under general anesthesia. And uh, this patient is going to have a turbinectomy, so we're going to inject the turbinates with Zytocaine containing 100,000 epinephrine using a long uh, 25-gauge spinal needle. We will then pack the nose with afferent-containing gauze. And this uh, gauze is saturated in afferent. We're gonna insert it. And the idea here is to insert the gauze as far posteriorly as we can because as you will see in a minute, the anterior portion of the nose is going to be injected sufficiently with uh, vasoconstrict agents. Uh, we need to get vasoconstriction posteriorly. Now I'm ready to inject the nose, the xylocaine containing one in 200,000 epinephrine. And we're going to inject the nose twice and I'm going to explain why. So I started from the radix, now we're injecting in a, in a very organized manner the outside of the nasal bone, the in, uh, the lateral nasal bone on the opposite side, that lateral wall on the la, uh, opposite side, including the uh, lateral to the area, lateral to the nasal bone, and medial to the nasal bone. Then we're injecting across the roof of the nose on both sides. <clears throat> and as uh, we do this, we're going to now come down to the and inject on both sides of the nose, on uh, the nasal septum, uh, and as you see right there, uh, and uh, uh, next I'm going to scrub and come back, inject the nose for the second time. This time I'm going to use lidocaine 1% with uh, containing one in 100,000 epinephrine. I'm sure you recall I indicated that initially I injected the nose with Zytocaine containing one in 200,000 epinephrine. Now I'm injecting with Zytocaine containing one in 100,000 epinephrine. The idea is to avoid systemic reaction that I used to see uh, almost on every patient, uh, uh, older young, m- mostly on teenagers, which they have a lot of circulating epinephrine, uh, adrenaline. And when we inject the epinephrine, uh, the blood pressure goes up and the pulse rate goes up. I want to avoid that. But more importantly, I want to have protracted vasoconstriction. And the way I'm going to achieve that by injecting the area initially with xyloquine containing one or 200,000 epinephrine without any systemic effect then I'm going to inject area of azotacan containing one 100,000 epinephrine. Since I already have some basic restriction, this uh, effect is going to be profound and it's going to also last significantly more. So the
1: question I have this is... This
0: solution also contains naropin, which is a ropivocaine, and three milligrams per cc tranexamic acid. I can't tell you how often this actually reduces the periorbital swelling and bruising after the surgery the next day or subsequent week.
1: So, a question there is. After I inject the. After I inject
0: the.
1: Sorry, Prof. I... A question for uh, you. In total volume, how much are you injecting in those two times? The first time before you scrub and the second time after you've scrubbed? What's the total amount of. Uh, liquid that you're injecting?
0: Okay, uh, that's a good question. Um, I usually inject uh, just eight cc's. Now, I'm uh, injecting more like 10 cc's and sometimes 20 cc's each time I inject. Uh, And in in a way, actually, I'm creating a little bit of uh, uh, tumescent effect, but all of this dissipates, and you can see, and you're looking at the nose, that has been injected already uh, with the medica- with all of what we discussed. And I'm ready to uh, uh, make the incision, columnar incision. So before I mark the nose, uh, uh, before I inject the nose, I'm retracting the nostrils and uh, designing this step incision. Then I'm going to let the uh, no, uh, nose, come come down, make sure that this incision is not too close to the nostril margin, the nostril anterior border of the uh, nostril margin. Otherwise you can distort the nostril. So uh, I'm ready to uh, now uh, do do make the incision. The incision is made using uh, a 15 blade and you can see I'm connecting those uh, uh, in the deep subcutaneous plane without really cutting the uh, medial crura. I'm obviously careful not to do that. Uh, and the next step is to place two retractors in, in position. I'm going to place a, a small double hook uh, on the calimella and a single hook on the uh, lateral cruise and on the nostril and uh, um, make a mar- an incision that is marginal and uh, uh, anteriorly. But as I go posteriorly, I follow the contour of the lateral cru- uh, cruise. So essentially it is, uh, this is at the border of the lateral cruise.
1: We will then, we will, we pass- will then. Sorry. Um- so, uh, wh- whilst you're busy getting that screen up, a quick question is, the, especially it seems to be in the younger colleagues who are just starting in plasty, they have this big decision about should they be doing a stair-step incision, or should they be doing an inverted V or going wing incision? What what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I've used both, uh, Cam, actually we, we'll come back to this video, uh, I'll, I, I use both, uh, but Uh, I have come to the conclusion that in my hands, the chance of a a, a trapdoor deformity is less likely with the step incision. Otherwise, as the tissues in the center contract uh, and the V V incision may lift up that corner, uh, that angle, uh, the, the sharp angle that it is in the V, and push it up. And I have seen that actually, I saw, I saw that on mine, my patients, and I have seen it uh, on patients of some of the individuals who are very experienced, because none of us can control the scar contraction. So when that con- uh, scar contract, sometimes lifts up that angle, uh, the corner at the sharp, uh, por- the sharp portion of the V. So, that's why I um, abandoned that and went back to step incision.
1: Okay, okay, that, that, that makes so, sense.
0: So, now we're going to, we're going to start the dissection. Uh, so, I, I, will, I have a different means of doing that. So, here's, here's what, what I'm doing, is dissecting the soft tissues off the medial cura, leaning my baby midsection bomb uh, on the cartilage, and uh, making sure that I'm not caught in the cartilage, but I'm not leaving any soft tissues behind because I don't want to thin out the uh, the, uh, the collimella. At the same time, before I do, I've go any further, I take a pair of iris scissors and lean it over the uh, lower lateral cartilage and gently spread the limbs of the iris scissors sharp end of the iris scissors to get on under the perichondrium i want to be under the perichondrium as much as i can or under the periosteum as much as i can during the rhinoplasty so when when i do that uh, actually i'm going to separate the soft tissues perichondrium from the underlying cartilage and if there's any question about this dissection, which can happen on very young patients, I'm going to actually do a little bit of hydro dissection here, Hy- meaning inject some more lidocaine uh, with epinephrine <clears throat> and not, the, not for the epinephrine, but just for the uh, liquid portion, the water portion, uh, soluble portion that <clears throat> is going to dissect the mucopericondrium from the cartilage. And this way it will facilitate uh, the, the the dissection. After we separate these, and you can see that cartilage has been exposed completely. Now I'm using the baby metzenbaum scissors to uh, uh, proceed with the dissection on the on the cartilage. I'm denuding the cartilage, and now we I separated the uh, the ligament, uh, the patagial ligament. <clears throat> We now are going to continue the dissection uh, on on, on the perichondrium, cephalically over the dorsum. And after that, you can see that there's actually not a lot of projection to the cartilages. Then, uh, this is the dissection over the caudal septum, I'm leaving very little soft tissues in the septum, removing as much as I can, except for the petangae ligament that is still sitting there. Uh, I use this uh, overgazer periosteal elevator, which is a wonderful tool to separate the soft tissues from the frame, uh, particularly the periosteum. Uh, And we're going to, this is the tool, that's the way it looks now. I'm going to take my time. This uh, is a sped up video, so it looks uh, like I'm moving too fast, but I'm trying to get under the periosteum, and I'm going to know that when I hear the bone sound, when I, uh, when I use the uh, periosteum on the body. You can see that even with the sped-up sped video, I'm taking my time because this is one of the problems with the secondary rhinoplasty is that a surgeon leaves the periosteum behind and gets into the subcutaneous plane, And when the hump is removed, it is a hump plus the periosteum. Uh, The periosteum is our ally, and it reduces the swelling, bruising after the surgery, and also uh, hides some of the minor imperfections that we may not see. now I'm using a piece of gauze saturated on uh, 50% uh, uh, 50%, uh, uh, epinephrine. Uh, again, I'm sorry, epinephrine 1 in 50. So it is saturated in epinephrine 1 in 50, and uh, uh, rather than 1 in 100,000, and it is packed in the area for a short period of time. I remove the packing, and uh, then I'm ready to operate. But before I do that, I check the bleeding. and. This is the step that we cannot avoid because otherwise it's going to make the rhinoplasty extremely frustrating for us. And if the patient at this point, I want to see absolutely blood free field. If I don't see that, I'm going to consider two things. First, is the patient's blood pressure high? So I'm going to ask the anesthesiologist. Uh, what is the blood pressure? If the blood pressure is normal, in the absence of hypertension, there are two common modalities, conditions that cause excessive bleeding. One is the von Willebrand disease. The second one is uh, some sort of coagulopathy or consumption of uh, aspirin, aspirin type medications. And we can controlled 99% of the reasons of factors causing the extra bleeding during the surgery by two steps. First, I'm going to use the tranexamic acid, 10 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Now, from this, we're going to deduct the tranexamic that was dissolved in the injected solution so it is going to be 10 milligrams per kilogram of body weight minus what is injected in the solution and if the bleeding doesn't stop i'm going to use ddavp or desmopressin and this is the dose is 0.3 Microgram per kilogram of body weight, 0.3 microgram per kilogram of body weight. That that translates to 16 to 20 microgram uh, for an adult patient. It is infused in 50 C, uh, using 50 cc C C of saline uh, over a period of 30 to 45 minutes. And the reason is, if you, if you use it fast, it causes hypotension, hypotension, and we want to avoid that. And the only contraindication for use of either one of these medications is a known coronary artery disease. I'm not doing a rhinoplasty as somebody who has a known coronary artery disease. Uh, so. Uh, it, it, essentially, there is no contraindication. And these patients uh, who receive DDAVP may not urinate as frequently as they used to, but it's not a problem. I've written about, uh, two articles about uh, this, this matter, uh, one in, going back to 1994 and the other one in SJ, ISJ in 2012.
1: So can I so, ask you a question here, Prof? on the trans- yes. tranexamic acid. I had an interesting discussion with my anaesthetist yesterday in the case where we were discussing this and the patient was bleeding and I asked him that he would give the patient IV and he said to me am I not concerned with possible hypocoagulation because um, the patient is already having surgery so they are meant to be more hypercoagulable, and now you're also giving this. And his question was, are you not going to put some stockings on paths for DVTs? And my argument was, look, I'm going to be operating for one and a half hours, and the patient doesn't have risk factors. Um, Is that something that you've come across?
0: I have never seen any patient who had uh, thromboembolism uh, after uh, this type of surgery. Uh, And frankly, my, my setup is a little bit different on every patient that we Uh, do under anesthesia, we use tourniquet period. It is uh, an an important part of what we do. Uh, And majority of my patients that I I do, actually they are over uh, an hour and a half, average is two hours. Uh, uh, Secondary may take two and a half if I'm using a rib cartilage. Uh, But I use this uh, solution on facelift patients, eyelid patients, and I just did uh, uh, facelift uh, the day before yesterday uh, for, uh, for seven, eight hours, combination of facelift, eyelid, nose, and everything else, uh, lower blood, fat injection, um, and uh, we, we use the same, same uh, uh, solution, injectable solution. But I'm not worried about uh, normalizing Clotting. The reason that we use this is the patient is bleeding excessively, meaning that these patients have some sort of coagulopathy that we are we are we are actually uh, uh, reverting, uh, uh, and I'm not worried about that. Uh, so, if the patient is bleeding excessively, they have coagulopathy. I'm I'm, I'm actually normalizing that. Okay. Awesome. All right. Okay, so I'm going to show you. The next step is to remove the dorsal hump. And I use this RASP, but I also have been recently using uh, the uh, PZO. I've been familiar with it for years, but because of the tip, cost of the tips, uh, we couldn't use it because uh, in, in the United States, we we can, re, we could not u, reuse it according to the uh, company instruction. But now I can use it uh, because we are getting the tips from a company that doesn't require uh, us to, to be uh, one-time use only. Uh, so I do use PZO for taking down the hump as well. So, and... After I load the uh, hump, I'm going to deepen the radix with this device that I've been using it since the le- early 80s. And it is uh, made by Hal Zimmer, uh, and it is a guarded burr. And the t- there was a, a, an exact life, uh, lifetime uh, of uh, how long it takes uh, to, to deepen the radix with this device. Truly seconds, one or two seconds, uh, this is such a powerful device. And you notice also that I went side to side, uh, and you're going to see uh, that video one more time, I went side to side, cephalocardial, because I only want to deepen the radix uh, right where I want it, uh, at the level of the su- uh, supratarsal crease. So, after this is complete, uh, we're going to continue taking the hump down. And the goal here is to create a differential level between the cartilaginous hump and the bony dorsum, proportional to the size of the hump. For example, if my hump is 4, millimeter, uh, four millimeters, which is rare, I may take this down about four and a half, five millimeter because the soft tissue response to the skeletal alteration is not one-to-one. But uh, um, most of the time, uh, I'm gauging this uh, while I'm watching, uh, feeling the nose and watching the side view and uh, also from the surgeon surgeon's view. Uh, and here's, here's, we can see the, Uh, hump again, and uh, again the differential level in a close-up version. After I do that, and you notice that actually I'm not not removing the hump yet, I'm going to use this device that I have uh, designed and uh, black and black makes it and I have no financial interest on, to remove the excess portion of the uh, cephalic margin of the low lateral cartilages. You can see I'm leaving a significant amount caudally. This is four and a half uh, millimeters uh, for a uh, female, five millimeters for a male. And this area is seven, eight millimeters. I'm just removing a very conservative amount of uh, the lateral crus, And then we will remove the redundant soft tissues overlying the anterocortal septum which means it is a portion of the pitangae ligament that uh, I mostly left it attached to the uh, overlying the skin. And we talked about how we reattach it at the uh, end of the operation uh, last time, Um, particularly on patients who have thick skin. So the soft tissue is removed. Now I'm going to elevate the mycoperichondrium. Sometimes... It is, particularly on younger patients, it is difficult to get in the right plane. So what I'm going to do is, as you see, use a 15-blade to score the uh, mucoperichondrium, make sure that I'm in the right plane, which is going to be this grayish-bluish-shiny cartilage. If it is not shining, it means that we are in a wrong, wrong plane. And God knows that's very, very common and I've been there many times, that I thought that actually I was uh, subperichondrial, but I was superperichondrial. So it is important to get in the right plane. Then we're going to use the sharp end of the septal elevator to undermine the uh, uh, upper lateral cartilages as you saw a second ago. And then I'm going to take my uh, uh, scissors and uh, uh, cut the upper lateral cartilages, separate them from the midline. Now I'm ready to remove the dorsal hump. And Now that upper lateral cartilages are separated, we don't want to remove the upper lateral cartilages with the hump because because of what I'm going to, do, to explain to you clearly in a short while. We want to remove the only the septal portion of the harm, not the lateral crura at this point. And the, I showed you this already, and soft tissues are resected. Now, we're ready to do the septoplasty. And I do, uh, as, as long as I have an open roof, I'm going to do septoplasty through that open roof. And I showed you how I, I make sure that I'm going to get under the uh, uh make sure that I, uh, it, it, I'm in the right plane. I'm also separating the pericondrium on the opposite side of the uh, septum in a limited way. The hump is removed. Now we're, we're going to separate the uh, medial cura, remove soft tissues. If I'm going to use a chalimala strut where I need to separate the medial cura, I'm going to discuss this in a minute. So this is mainly to increase the exposure for the septoplasty, especially for the sake of this video. Uh, so. I don't always separate the medial crura unless there's a need for it, but I'm going to show you how I reapproximate approximate them in a minute. So the uh, lower lateral cartilages are separated. We're going to continue the dissection for the caudally and uh, I want to expose the, an, uh, the caudal septum and the anterior nasal spine and visualize the area. After I do that, I'm going to take the sharp end of the septal elevator to make an L-shaped incision on the uh, septum, leaving at least 15, most of the time, 20 millimeters anteriorly and at least 10 millimeters caudally. It is a lot easier to get on the other side of the septum and elevate the perichondrium intact uh, after we make this incision, I'm going to use the uh, sh- uh, sharp end of the elevator to start it. Then use the dull end, go all the way uh, to posteriorly and caudally.
1: So that's very now interesting. Now I'm ready to, to so you, separate. That's a very interesting. So you were only elevating perichondrium on the one side, and once you've done that, then you did this L shaped incision. In, instead of separating it on both sides so yeah, why do you not separate it on both sides so that you've got the septum completely free and then do the incision uh,
0: the, the reason that I don't I, I don't want to make uh, the septum too flyover, uh, too, uh, and uh, if in this part of the septum uh, the uh, pericondrium is, is still intact. Uh, when we separate all of the uh from the septum on both sides, we really uh, make the septum isolated. Now, unless I'm, I'm doing uh, extracorporeal, which I almost never do, uh, I, I, uh, or I need to score the opposite portion of the... Um, meaning on the left side would be the right side of the patient's septum, I have no good reason to separate the mycobrechondrium on uh, that L strut uh, on every patient because um, it's an Dutch section that I don't need it.
1: I can't understand it.
0: Okay. So, getting back to this video, I'm going to use the sharp end of the septal elevator to dislodge the posterior portion of the septum off the maxillary crest of the vomer bone. And this is going down uh, patiently, so I won't create a uh, perforation in the septum. Now, many times, there is this large spur posteriorly, large spur. And it is crucial to elevate the mucoperichondrium on the concave side of the septum because the spur will be on the convex side. And as long as we have the mucoperichondrium intact on one side of the septum, even if we have a tear where we're going to be removing the spur on the opposite side, it's not a, a problem is not going to result in chronic perforation. So if it is for that reason that I absolutely carefully elevate the mucoperichondrium all the way posteriorly down uh, to the essentially floor of the nose uh, and make sure, and ask, or posteriorly as I, I can see, <clears throat> to make sure that one side mucoperichondrium is uh, clearly intact. Now I I use the uh, sharp end of the septal uh, uh, the septal elevator to separate the uh, separate the uh, the perpendicular plate perpendicular plate from the uh, 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 from the septum from the uh, rectangular cartilage. This way I'll make sure that I have a good sized piece of cartilage otherwise if you take it in a piecemeal fashion, it's not going to serve the purposes that we, uh, we need the cartilage graft for. And uh, you are seeing uh, the, the extension of that cartilage further posteriorly uh, on the on the uh, uh, and this uh, on the uh, spur. And this is uh, showing the uh, endoscopic view showing how I I use the sharp end of the cartilage, uh, uh, a sharp end of the septal vertebrae to separate the cartilage from the perpendicular plate. And here is further uh, view uh, showing that, uh, demonstrating that uh, removal of the cartilage. But the septoplasty doesn't end here, doesn't end by removal of that piece of cartilage. Commonly, uh, as I mentioned, there's this large spur posteriorly. There's a deviation of the, uh, prepa- uh, the vomer bone, and as you saw, I'm dissecting the uh, uh, microperiosteum off the vomer bone further, so that I can remove the deviated portion of the <clears throat> vomer bone using that double-action rongeur, and and I insist on going further posteriorly and remove every piece of bone that is protruding into the airway while observing both sides of the nose internally through the nostrils. Uh, But the crucial part of the septoplasty also is elimination of redundant portion of this cartilage that I discussed last time And we're going to talk about it even further on the deviated noses. And uh, let me go back to this. So, uh, oh, uh, did I did I lose you again? No, no,
1: it's great. It's perfect. I can see. Good. Okay.
0: So, I think it is crucial to reposition this cartilage because often it's in, in, in often it's dislodged to one side or the other side of the. Uh, and tear nasal spine. And unless we remove that redundancy, we're not going to be able to create a, a, a swinging door condition so that we can reposition the cartilage over the underlying nasal bone. I'm going to next suture the uh, cartilage to the underlying nasal bone, uh, periosteum, using 50PDS. But before I do that, I'm going to make sure that the anterior nasal spine is in the right position. And as you will see, this is a figure of eight suture, so, so it doesn't allow the uh, septum uh, to, dislodge, to get uh, shifted to one side or the other side. Uh, and the way I assure that the anterior nasal spine is in a proper position by palpation, I put my right index finger in the patient's left nostril my thumb on the patient's right nostril and palpate the anterior nasal spine you cannot by just watching ascertain that the anterior nasal spine is in a right position you really have to feel it and if it is deviated i'm going to do an osteotomy and reposition the nasal bone uh, 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 nasal spine uh, to the midline uh, uh, and I usually do a green stick fracture so I don't need to fix it but if it is moving around easily I may actually fix it to the midline then I if I have to do a turbinectomy I use this uh, uh, XPS what is made by Medtronic XPS uh, turbinate shaver. Essentially, it is a suction lipectomy mechanism for reducing the size of the turbinate without having to uh, remove uh, uh, the turbinate uh, any mucosa, uh, which can cause dryness, although I did turbinectomy for many decades, and I really don't recall a single patient who complained about a dry nose as long as we leave a normal size turbinate behind. The purpose of the turbinectomy is to normalize the size of the turbinate, not remove it completely. As long as we do that, regardless of how we achieve that goal, is not going to cause uh, any kind of uh, dryness. And if you don't have that device, uh, I just use uh, uh, I can, you can use this uh, turbinate scissors, which again I left normal size behind and removed, normal size turbinate behind and removed the redundant portion. Then I'm going to gently cauterize the raw area using this uh, Valley Lab suction cautery. It is one of the best tools that Valley Lab has made, and one of the, one of the best tools that I use. Because you can cauterize the uh, any uh, deeper tissue, and I, in fact, use this during the endoscopic forehead lift. I use it for migraine patients, so it's a great device. I do use Doyle stents on either side of the septum and fix them in position. These are saturated in vasodrase <clears throat>, ointment, placed in position, and we're going to fix them to uh, the. Uh, septum using a blue uh, 4 50 uh, proline suture so uh, i can find it easily and the ends are left and placed inside the uh, doyle stent uh, so that will facilitate finding it
1: okay professor ask you a question before how long I, do you leave go. the doyle splints in for yes uh, that's a good question
0: I I I leave the uh, dorsal stents in place seven eight days. I remove them before I remove the nasal bones, so that inadvertently, while I'm removing the uh, dorsal stents, I won't push the nasal bones aside. uh, Without uh, if I remove the uh, uh, dorsal splint ahead of time, so uh, dorsal stents removed are removed first, then the dorsal splint is removed. So, getting back to uh, now, uh, after I complete a septoplasty, I'm going to do uh, a nasal bone osteotomy. And before I do that, before I complete the osteotomy, I feel the nasal bones one more time. And it's amazing how often you think that actually nasal bones and dorsal hump uh, are smooth, but when you come back for a second time and feel, you almost invariably find a little bit of irregularity, but you don't want to do an osteotomy and find that. So I do, I uh, rasp the uh, hump uh, or use uh, PZO to make the bones smoother one more time before I begin the osteotomy. The osteotomy in most patients who have an open roof is going to include three steps. First, we're going to do a medial osteotomy. And I do that using a 6 millimeter osteotome placed in the inner surface of the nasal bone and advanced cephalically step by step while my non-dominant index finger is carefully monitoring the position of the uh, nasal bone or position of the osteotome and then we will use and this is an intranasal view of the same osteotomy Uh, and if the nasal bones are significantly apart i'm going to actually remove a piece of a, a, a wedge of bone between the nasal bone and the septum to allow me to reposition the nasal bone. One of the failures that I had in repositioning the nasal bone or narrowing the nasal bone sufficiently was this that I didn't do initially, but I've been doing it for decades now and in order to narrow the nasal bones sufficiently we need to remove that wedge of bone as you see right there. And then we're going to do a percutaneous osteotomy feeling the nasal bones first, and starting from the nasal bone, where the nasal bones diverge. Not necessarily at the lateral cantus, uh, the medial cantus level, not necessarily at the tarsal crease level, where the nasal bones diverge, because for many patients, this divergent site is different. And we will do that on both sides then we make a, an incision of vestibular lining and elevate the uh, periosteum using the Joseph's periosteal elevator, as you see there, and then use the guarded bone uh, to finish the osteotomy, as you see right there. And the factors that are going to govern uh, my um, Uh, three osteotomy is going to be size of the hump uh, that I'm removing, uh, posterior nasal bones and presence or absence of asymmetry. In the presence of asymmetry I may still do three-step osteotomy because I need these nasal bones respond differentially Uh, and uh, If the nasal bones are attached to each other and the asymmetry is uh, on one side, it is impossible to correct. And as we do this osteotomy, reposition nasal bones, invariably we reposition the upper lateral cartilage and we need to make sure that we can avoid the ill effects of that. Here's a long-term follow-up on this particular patient with long nasal bones and very wide nasal bones. And uh, you can see we, we have been able to avoid an inverted V deformity because I use spreader on uh, these patients. And the longer the nasal bones uh, they, uh, they are, the more uh, they're going to influence the airway. airway. And in some patients, when we do the osteotomy, which usually I do a low to low osteotomy, uh, if the inferior turbinate extends anterior to the uh, osteotomy plane, we're going to medialize this. So rather than doing that on these patients, I'm going to do a high to low osteotomy to avoid medialization of the inferior turbinate. <coughs> Excuse me, and if this happens that I medialize the inferior turbinate, I will trim the uh, small amount of inferior turbinate, I apologize. So, and this way we can avoid uh, the inferior turbinates, uh, medialization that will interfere with the airway. I trim the upper lateral cartilages, after I complete the osteotomy. And you can see, even on this patient, we are differentially removing the upper lateral cartilages. And the reason is, on deviated noses, as we complete the osteotomy and reposition nasal bones, we're going to have one side that is going to be longer and the other side that's going to be shorter. And if we trim the upper lateral cartilages uh, uh, in the beginning with the hump, uh, we may actually have shortage on one side and excess on the other side. Uh, I apply spreader grafts invariably when I have an open roof uh, and uh, uh, the uh, spreader grafts are prepared as you see there uh, with the ends are beveled and uh, uh, placed in position, uh, extending from the caudal portion of the uh, Nasal spine, as we discussed last time, to the uh, caudal portion of the uh, lower lateral cartilage, uh, upper lateral cartilages. And they're fixed in position uh, using uh, these mattress sutures, as we discussed. What happens if we don't use the spreader graft? Uh, we're going to have an inverted V, v deformity. You notice that on that uh, slide, I showed you that I applied the spreader graft on the, the patient's left side, but not on the right side, and you can see what would happen if we don't use spreadographs And it doesn't happen right away. It, take, it may happen six months later, a year later, years later. And then after we do that, we reposition the, uh, we approximate the upper lateral cartilages. But depending on whether there's an anterior differ, deviation, uh, I'm going to use Different type of approximation. Are there going to be a simple uh, suture or mattress suture that is placed cephalically on one side and caudally on the other side, so that I can actually influence the uh, anterior nose like that? You see, on this patient, the nose was deviated to the patient's l- right, and I used this this uh, uh, suture that we call a septal rotation suture or uh, clocking suture uh, to uh, reposition the septum. Uh, suture, one of the best things that I ever described for controlling the anterior portion of the septum and we will discuss this more on deviated noses. And before I touch the cartilage on every patient, uh, cartilage, uh, septal cartilage. I har- harvest my uh, uh, the, uh, my condymal uh, uh, because I'm going to need the straightest, longest piece of cartilage. And the cart, the uh, 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 spreader that you saw, I harvested. The, I already had harvested the uh, uh, se- the condymal uh, before we harvested the spreader grafts. So, uh, I'm removing the uh, soft tissues uh, in between the medial crura, which include the depressor nasi septi muscle because our patient uh, used to have significant rotation of the tip caudally and we're going to prevent that uh, by two means. One, one is removing the attachment of the uh, depressor nasi septi muscle to the medial crura, and the other is uh, placement of a columnar strut. And uh, if I'm going to remove the anterior nasal spine on a patient who has prominent nasal spine, I'm going to remove that, then place the rod in position, then uh, tattoo across while the domes are pulled symmetrically anteriorly. Uh, and these will help me to uh, re- reposition the uh, uh, medial cura. Uh, according to these tattoo marks, while I'm, uh, I'm, pla- I'm placing the strut in position, very precisely because those tattoo marks were placed while the domes were pulled anteriorly equally. So every time we put one suture and tie it, it, it is going to nicely uh, approximate the medial cura but also uh, adjust the length of the lower lateral cartilages. After we complete that then we're going to look at the domes to see how they are positioned. Uh, And if we need to, we're going to use a subdomal graph, which is a graph that uh, aligns the domes, as we discussed, perfectly, and and advanced it on one side, advanced it on the other side. And we're going to suture these in position uh, using uh, monocryl or vicryl, it doesn't have to be PDS and control the distance from one side to the other side of the uh, other side of the dome, as you see there. Setting this in about nine millimeter, nine to ten millimeters, in average, uh, could be eight millimeter on a patient who have thinner skin, or uh, even 10, 11 millimeters on somebody who has thinner skin. And this way, we have an absolute. Uh, control of, uh, we have absolute control of the, uh, the, uh, the the domes. And you can see a micro suture or monocro suture is placed across the dome uh, to uh, uh, again get the distance adjusted to what would be ideal. And this stitch is showing something that I'm going to talk in a minute. Uh, it, it is suspension of the foot plates from the medial cura. In some patients who have inadequate incisor show, rather than uh, just depending on the alone, I'm going to place the columnar and take a bite of the medial cura, part of the anterocardial septum, and suspend the uh, medial uh, the caudal frame from the antercaudal septum and that way i'm lifting the soft tissues up and improving the incisor show on a patient who when it spoke we didn't have the incisor show we're going to create incisor show and if the patient has convex lateral cura we can use this uh, gruber's uh, lateral cura spanning suture or transdomal suture if the convexity is significant or uh, we can use interdomal suture if the domes are too far apart. And on patients who have cephalically positioned low lateral cartilages, I'm going to reposition the lateral crura as we discussed the other day, Uh, uh, separate them from the underlying frame place the column uh, lateral curl in position, create a pocket laterally, and place the uh, lateral curl in position, then uh, suture the uh, incision if uh, we need to. Now, if, and uh, uh, if uh, I, I need to approximate the foot plates, I would separate them, approximate them, and use a, uh, uh, use a suture, uh, this is a for of suture, to approximate the foot place after I have sutured them together using the PDS. This uh, uh, video shows an interdomal suture, uh, which is figure of eight to avoid the overlap. As we tie this, uh, we're going to approximate the uh, domes that are divergent, or if the domes are, uh, are uh, wide, meaning the domal arch is wide, we're going to use transtomal suture, as you see here. I only use PDS on all of these sutures, except for when I approximate the uh, approximate the uh, car- cephalic portion of lower lateral cartilages to the caudal septum. Uh, this shows the uh, indications for a collimulus strut when we have Uh, Short columella, weak tip support, narrow nasolabial angle, retractor subnasale, and uh, uh, also uh, you you saw uh, on this one uh, deviated uh, columella, or sometimes the columella is twisted. Now, in order to separate this, uh, this, uh, rotated tip cephalically, we need to go through three steps. First, we need to uh, make a, uh, an incision in the membraneous septum or transfixion incision and remove the redundant portion of the um, membraneous septum as you see here. This is not necessary on uh, patients uh, uh, from Asia or African Americans because they have separation of the cephalic portion of the, the low lateral cartilages from the dorsum. The second step is to remove a Triangular, paste, uh, ba- a triangular piece based anteriorly uh, of the caudal septum. The third step is uh, to use a permanent suture. This is the only time that I use a 5-0 nylon uh, to pass through the medial crura, pass through the anterocardial septum, uh, and bring it back in between the medial crura and the uh, strut medial crus and caudal uh, rod on the uh, caudalus rod on the opposite side and tied incre- uh, incrementally to juxtapose the cephalic portion of the medial cura and uh, the caudal septum this way I have enormous control on the tip that will not uh, rotate costly. <clears throat> and uh, this actually patient shows uh, the use of uh, uh, the, uh, uh, all of the techniques that we discussed and who has asymmetric tip and where we can actually adjust the, uh, uh, the uh, distance between the domes. I do resect the uh, membra- membrane septum if it, uh, I do resect the soft angle lining if there is redundancy and then approximate the skin as you see there. Put a uh, lateral uh, cruisist rod in position that we already have talked about. And this shows the approximation of the foot plate. I'm dissecting, removing the redundant portion. Then we're going to use a suture starting on one side and the suture will be passed behind the medial cura and uh, approximated together, uh, tied together and uh, if the patients have asymmetric ailer base uh, while I'm doing the ailer base resection differentially and if the nostril lifts uh, cephalically too much not only I'm going to narrow that side as you see uh, to correct the asymmetry related to the width of the nostril I'm also going to deepen my incision in order to uh, release the muscle that lifts the nostril uh, levator muscle that lifts the muscle on one side more so than the other side and this is the excision and we're going to uh, use the bovie to uh, remove the rest and then i'm going to deepen the uh, incision beyond this incision meaning uh, as you will see in a minute, to, to separate the, uh, the, the levator muscle from the base of this nostril. Uh, and here is the uh, bovi going deeper and deeper. Then we will approximate the uh, nostril using 6-0 plane And when, when you do that uh, you can see the asymmetry in the nostrils. One side is higher and, uh, uh, and you can see while the patient is smiling, now we have more symmetry, just a 16 year follow up on this particular patient. And that, that uh, I showed you already, uh, the approximation of the uh, approximation of the foot place and elimination of dead space. This uh, video just shows insertion of the uh, LRM graph that we have talked about. Uh, and here's a pocket being created Uh, And placed in position, the ilium will be in position. We have shown this, uh, that video significantly. I use uh, massesol to uh, help the tapes adhere better, Uh, and if I have to use uh, stents, uh, which I commonly use when we transpose the uh, lower lateral cartilages, those are placed in position, uh, and. Here's again, master cell is applied, uh, straighter strips applied, and I use uh, uh, Denver uh, splint, but I, almost invariably I have to remodel it, and I only use the outside layer, uh, layer of this, which has Velcro in the back, and bend the margins, and tailor a piece of aquaplast, as you see there, and uh, we're going to use the combination of the aquaplast and uh, uh, this uh, uh, aquaplast is going in position and the Denver splint will go on top of it. This way we have a secure splint in position and we will use stair strips to fix everything in position. So this shows uh, a complete video of this patient. Now we're going to see the patient. So. On this patient, we, uh, again, I didn't use, I, uh, the part of the reason that uh, the, the slides were so, sort of uh, skipping from one thing to the other thing is because I wanted to show the different videos uh, that I didn't do on this patient. However, on this patient, we removed the cephalic margin of the low lateral cartilages, dorsal hump was removed, osteotomies, spread grafts, uh, septal rotation suture, and... Used uh, a a column, uh, rod, uh, and the resected the uh, caudal septum in a triangular shape. Uh, resected the foot plates, approximated them, and used tip rotation suture. And uh, base was reduced, and ilor rim grafts were applied. Here's a patient over a year later, and you can see uh, the Uh, Highlights of the tip that are higher now, we can see the nostrils, the nose has been shortened on the front view, quarter view, uh, and profile, Uh, you can see the angle has been changed, and the dorsal hump has been removed, the radix has been deepened. And you can see the effects of that, the surgery, the foot place, LR rim graft, how much the nostrils have been widened. So in summary, I, I have shared a complete video of uh, one patient and added some other videos to show you the spectrum of uh, techniques that are used on a primary rhinoplasty patient. Uh, and I hope that uh, you can apply these principles in your practice.
1: Thank you. Sure, Prof, thank you. It's that, like there's this enormous buffet table that you've laid out in front of us that we can choose things from. Um, I, I think I would think that listeners in in maybe in two groups listeners who are starting off should actually almost get a fright and realize how much you must respect rhinoplasty if this is how complex a primary rhinoplasty is it, it's massive you have to plan so meticulously before uh, and for the more experienced guys obviously they'll be able to take cherry pick the things they really want to know um, I was in, in in theater yesterday with a resident and I said to him I felt the three most important things, that you, the goals for a rhinoplast is you need to look at what the dorsal aesthetic lines are going to be, what your projection and what your rotation is going to be. And that's the foundation upon which you must build the rest of your surgeries. And I think you're, in a way, this toolbox that you've shown us, they're obviously things you use more often, but you have to be able to have so many potential skills to use. When So the, the question I'm kind of leading to is this is, you, you you like you don't want to overcomplicate it because there were so many steps and we could have spoken for an hour just on the rim grafts for example but how do you kind of try to tone it down and, and not get too complicated in what you're doing
0: well I, I think you can uh, simplify this by choosing your patients properly and letting the patients that are complicated be done by experienced, more experienced people, and when you get to a point that you are experienced, you're going to get to do the more uh, complex cases. Unfortunately, there's not such a thing as a shortcut. Every step that I showed you had a purpose, and one of the most important aspects of rhinoplasty that I speak about and that by itself is in our presentation, is dynamics of rhinoplasty. And I have that in my book. Uh, I have a chapter on dynamics of rhinoplasty. In fact, next to the nose analysis, the most the second most important aspects of rhinoplasty is the dynamics of rhinoplasty. And the reason is you do one thing that is going to deliver what you're intended three other things that occur, that they are not intended. And unless you uh, use your experience and understanding the rhinoplasty and overcome some of the uh, ill effects of the other uh, uh, changes that are going to occur, you're going to have problems, you're going to have suboptimal outcomes. And sometimes the effects are synergistic. So if you're not considering the synergistic effects, you're going to over-rotate the tip too much. So, uh, for example, whenever you put a, a strut in position, you're going to see change in the uh, cephalic rotation of the tip. Is that good for a patient who has short nose that is under-projected? No. It's going to make the nose to look shorter. So you need to overcome the adverse effect so it is crucial that our second step in learning rhinoplasty should be understanding the dynamics of
1: rhinoplasty okay so so <coughs> Prof, thank you very much for that My, the last question i have for you before you uh, wrap up is for <coughs> the listeners to be able to get hold of your book how can they uh, get get a copy of your book
0: uh, Springer is the publisher of the uh, book and Or all they need to do is just send me an email My email is very easy bcayoran.com
1: Well, That's fantastic So for the listeners out there, please um, I can speak uh, Prof is so open and is so into wanting to teach So please reach out to him And we're looking forward to having one more special episode in the next couple of weeks. So, Prof, thank you again for taking so much of your time to teach the the listeners all around the world. And um, have a great rest of your day.
0: Thank Thank you.